Hello, and welcome to the Vevolution podcast. Vevolution is a global organization promoting plant-powered positive change through events and a wide range of content created to inspire you. Each episode of this podcast will share with you stories and ideas told by positive change makers leading the way in shaping a better future. Jack Harris is a documentary filmmaker and climate activist. He started the YouTube channel Jack's Gap on his gap year, in which he gained a substantial following. And since then, Jack's dedicated his time to environmental activism. In this talk, Jack talks to fellow climate activist Venetia Lamana about being a recovering hypocrite, his work with Extinction Rebellion, and his recent arrest. This talk was recorded on the Vevolution stage at Vevolution Festival 2019. Hello, I'm Venetia. I am a podcaster and a creator and a climate activist. And I'm really, really excited to be joined by one of my inspirations, Jack Harry's Hello. Stop. Hello. You are. You. I find you very, very inspiring. Well, likewise, right back at you. Thank you, mate. So <laughs> we're going to be having a nice, relaxed chat. Jack was here last year. I'm sure some of you remember his talk if you were here. It was really, really... Uh, it was really powerful. Yeah, I know. I forgot some of my words at the start of it, and I've never forgiven myself for that. And no. I think I managed to get the rest of it done, but it's always terrifying when you have to give and deliver a talk. And um, I was, we were just recollecting, actually, one of my videos didn't play, which was of this guy dancing. And one of the happy pair, you guys probably know the happy pair, was at the back, and he was like, do the dance, because <laughs> the video didn't play. And I, at the moment, I just wanted to die a million deaths. But those experiences make you a better public speaker, I think. And, you know, at the time, it sort of feels awful. But I look back, and I thought, that's a good learning curve. Yeah, definitely. And anyone who's talking today, big shout-out to you, because it is quite intimidating mm. being on a stage in any mm. capacity, uh, let alone a plant-based TED Talk, really, which is what this is. Mm. Um, so, Jack, let's start by winding back the clocks a little bit. I'd love for you to share with us how you got to doing what you are doing today. A little bit about your career and your journey um, on social media as well, on YouTube. And sure. Yeah, let's hear more about that. The life story, yeah. How the long have you story. got? Bloody <laughs> hell. Um, okay, yeah, so I, I guess I'm a documentary filmmaker uh, and activist, environmental activist. Um, I My journey started, so I like grew up with, I'm an identical twin, and we grew up together causing a lot of mischief and uh, making a lot of like home movies. Actually, the first way I ever figured out how to make money, I've never actually told anyone this, there was a website called firebox.com and you could buy like gadgets on it, silly little things. And they started this thing where if you, you send in a video and if you had the best video of the month, they would give you a 20 pound voucher for the website. And Finn and I discovered this age like, I don't know, 15 or something. And we started making these videos and I think we were the only people sending in videos. So every single month we would win best, best video of the month and get a 20 pound voucher and we would use that to buy our next little like gadget and then make a film about that. And wow. it became this whole like business so that was how we started. Hustling and they from day one. Real like hustle, like, yeah, build, building that business. And um, they were awful, awful films, but um, I think we were literally the only person, people sending in. But that was, so that was how we sort of started, like, you know, uh, experimenting with filmmaking. And, and, and um, yeah, long story short, I suppose I was watching a lot of YouTube when I was, uh, as a form of procrastination, when I was uh, meant to be revising for my A-levels and discovered this back in 2011. It's so hard to imagine now that, YouTube then was a totally different place. No one was making money. It wasn't possible to make money, and th there weren't any businesses. It was just like pure creativity. And I sort of observed kids making videos in their bedrooms, and it just seemed like the most exciting thing to be able to run a sort of TV channel from your bedroom, as it were. And so um, when I finished my A-levels, 
passed them by the skin of my teeth. Uh, I took a year off and I created uh, a YouTube channel. I called it Jack's Gap, as in Jack's Gap, yeah. Looking back, wasn't much longevity in that name, <laughs> but I never thought it would go beyond that year Jack's off. Jack's Gap life. Right, that's exactly <laughs> it, yeah, I need to amend that. Um, and uh, yeah, did that for the year and it sort of, uh, it was just when YouTube uh, was kind of blowing up and, and, and um, we sort of just rode that wave and it was amazing to see the platform grow and uh, all these sort of creators emerge and um, yeah, so I sort of did that for three or four years. And I suppose a really pivotal moment for me was when uh, my brother and I were approached by the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, and they offered us an opportunity to go to Greenland uh, to go and understand what was happening with glacial retreat. And at the time, I knew a, a little bit about climate change. My mum was a climate activist when we were growing up. And um, I remember uh, one time when we were like 14, she was like, um, she was dressed as a suffragette on her way out to the Houses of Parliament, she ran a local group called Climate Action Now. And I remember her saying, um, boys, um, mummy may be arrested tonight, but don't worry, I'll be home in time for breakfast. And we were like, okay, mummy. <laughs> and so from a young age, we had this idea drilled into us of like fighting for what you believe in. Uh, and so that all came full circle when we went out to Greenland uh, on this science research trip. And it was just, it just blew my mind. It, we went and spent a night camping on the Jakobsavn Glacier, which is in Greenland. It's the fastest retreating glacier in the world. Wow. Obviously, the glaciers are retreating because the Earth's temperature is rising. So they're melting, falling into the ocean, increasing rising sea levels. And you sort of know all this stuff. And a lot of us probably read this stuff. But it's, you know, I'm not good with numbers. I'm, I was never good at science. And so it's very hard to comprehend, isn't it? It's happening in faraway places. It's confused by numbers and graphs. And there's nothing more visceral than standing on that glacier and, and, and listening and feeling the sound of these huge pieces of ice falling into the ocean. Um, and there was no doubt left in my mind of the, the drastic changes that were happening to our planet as a result of our actions. And so I literally sort of promised myself that night, this was back in 2015, um, that I would sort of commit my life to trying to communicate this issue and also trying to communicate how is this seemingly remote event affecting humans all around the world, which we now understand it is. Um, and so since then, I've been privileged to travel to many of the front lines of climate change, um, often with the WWF. Uh, so uh, with my partner, Alice, we've traveled to Somaliland when they're in the midst of a severe drought to understand how that was affecting uh, nomads, you know, uh, nomadic pastoralists. Uh, we traveled to Kiribati, a remote island nation in the South Pacific, which is under threat from sea level rise. It'll be the first to go as sea levels rise. And we literally watched as people rebuilt their sea walls. Um, and most recently to Borneo to understand the plight of the orangutan, which is on the front lines of deforestation there. And so obviously there's a real irony to traveling around the world to report on climate change. Yeah. And this is something I'm realizing. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of drastically reducing my travel. I offset it all as well. But it's, it's, um, it's just been an amazing experience to go and to meet people who are really living on the front lines of climate change. And it's felt like an important story to communicate because of course these people are the canaries in the mine, right? So right now you walk around London, our lives don't seem as though they're affected by climate change, but of course it will affect all of us in the near future. And so I think telling these people's stories is important to sort of foreshadow the future we're facing. Absolutely. It's so uh, funny that you bring that up because I always think of kind of the David Attenborough documentaries and how they're so big budget and there's so much manpower and energy put into them. Mm. Obviously, that's a very wasteful industry, yeah. but without those documentaries, where would we be? Without right. Attenborough making those documentaries, where would we be? And I guess that's what you've touched on with you know your own traveling. I think I'd love to talk about that a bit more later. Um, I'd love to talk more about the climate crisis and what's been where things have gone basically in the past year in terms of how much of a conversation this has been for all of us. Mm. Um, and partly that's 
thanks to Extinction Rebellion, who mm. you are affiliated with. Mm. So let's talk about your involvement with Extinction Rebellion and what you've kind of been working on with them this year. Yeah, it was so strange to think, isn't it? I was just thinking as you were speaking there that even since I was sat here last year, everything's changed when it comes to climate change. You know, I mean, everyone, everyone in this room is fully aware of climate change, what it is, the severity of it. But even last year, I felt speaking about it, it was a little bit still kind of like risque to talk about the severity of the crisis. And the last year has been pivotal for the narrative of climate change. And I think that's uh, thanks to a few different groups and parties, Greta Thunberg obviously is one, and by extension, the, the, the global school strikes. Um, and then Extinction Rebellion have to be given some credit for that. And it's, it's also uh, strange to remember that it's a year old. It just had its first birthday two weeks ago, I think. So, and it sort of feels like a mainstay, Extinction Rebellion. It's like made its way into the dictionary almost, but it's, yeah, it's a year old. And I, so I, short story, <laughs> long story cut short on that one, I came across them and I was making a documentary about air pollution a year and a half ago in London. I was doing a master's degree in film and making this short film about, about air pollution. I read about this man called Roger Hallam who was shutting down roads in London to protest around air pollution with like four or five people. And I sort of read this article, thought it sounded interesting. So I went down and I met Roger at King's University where he was doing a PhD in direct action activism, studying uh, social movements of the past and figuring out how to make change, basically. And he was testing his theories by shutting down roads with three or four people. And I interviewed him and... Um, he said to me on that day, this was yeah, just over a year ago, a year and a half ago, he said, um, yeah, I've got this idea, Jack. I, uh, I'm going to make this, I'm going to take this bigger. I'm going to have thousands of people sat in the roads of London to protest around climate change. And on the day, I was like, oh, yeah, sounds great, Roger. Yeah. Wow, good luck with that. And uh, keep me updated. Yeah, and I just, I guess that showed my ignorance and lack of, of vision because a few weeks later, um, Roger, along with a few friends, established Extinction Rebellion. And that was exactly their aim. And I sort of just watched as it, as it grew rapidly and then sort of came back with my tail in between my legs and was like, can I help? And uh, so really early on, Roger, they were so desperate for help that... Um, they are the most high-profile people they could find to deliver the Declaration of Rebellion to Theresa May at Downing Street was my brother and I. <laughs> and so on a really grey day, just over a year ago in London, uh, Finn and I went down Downing Street with four people and we were stood outside and we were like, we're rebelling against the government, <laughs> so just want to de declare that. And um, it was tragic and we were moved to the side of the road so that a van delivering premium meats could make its way to Downing Street. Stop. And oh I was like, the irony it. is too much. <laughs> there is no hope. Wow. And um, so, yeah, so, and uh, I, like, I, the, the one thing I say is, uh, like, every step of the way, I have not had the vision or faith to believe this thing would work. And it's credit to the people who have started this movement and who are the real instigators. I've, I've absolutely just tagged along for the ride. Um, you know, these people, like, to put a pink boat in Oxford Circus, I would never have the vision to pull something like that off or, or the bravery. And it's been amazing just to be there in the sort of front seat watching uh, this, this group of people. Um, Gail Brabrook is, is the other founder, along with Roger Hallam. And uh, many, many people, you know, there's many people that ma have made this movement happen. And it's just been amazing to, to, yeah, watch it be sort of birthed. And it's been on a real journey. And so obviously, as I talk about it now, it's a lot more controversial than it was, say, six months ago. And so we had the April Rebellion, which was amazing. I don't know who came down to the April Rebellion. Any, anyone came down? Yeah. yeah. So it was like, uh, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, I, just, I had an embarrassingly good time at that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like a rebellion, but it was also just it was blue skies and there was music and there was food and there was community and a lot of what Extinction Rebellion is about 
is painting a picture of the world that we want to see. You know, what, are we, what world are we going to transition to? And that's about community and it's about family. And like when you're looking at the transition we have to go through, community and family is so important. It's going to be the most important thing. And so I really felt nourished by that week. It was amazing. And um, yeah, then cut to October of this year, which was our next rebellion. And I don't know if anyone came down to that. Yeah, a few people. people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was like a, a, a totally different atmosphere, you know, and I think... It we, was, wasn't it? It, it felt different. Yeah, so you were there. It felt really different. And um, I think we had to dig a lot deeper during that week to remember why we were there and to communicate the message. And I think there are lots of reasons why it was a lot more different. The weather wasn't as good for starters. But I think it also has to be said that uh, the police came in a lot more uh, heavy, you know, which is, I suppose, understandable. They'd seen what happened last time and, and they couldn't be seen to let that happen again. But they came in in an incredibly aggressive, aggressive manner. They confiscated our disabled toilets. They took away infrastructure for communication. Um, you know, on the first day, I watched a, a guy's finger be broken in a sort of uh, scrum with the police. And it was like, whoa, this is such a different vibe. And so, yeah, that it felt a lot sadder, um, a lot more sad than the one before. Uh, um, but in a way, it's sort of like, it is quite sad, all of this. It isn't just a party. And, and I think that that April thing was special. But I, I think we are going to have to dig a lot deeper as, as the reality of this situation uh, really settles in. So. My only frustration, I'd love to hear your thoughts on mm. this because you're much better versed in it than I am. My only frustration with the timing of the second rebellion in October was the fact that it felt overshadowed by everything happening politically. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's uh, something that we've had the whole way through with Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. It feels like every time we achieve some big stunt or something, there's some bloody piece of Brexit news. Yeah. And we've been fighting that battle the whole way through. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, I feel like anybody, everyone here, I just want Brexit to be done in whatever capacity that is, just be out the way. I mean, like, we're spending all this time and energy worrying about whether we're part of a club, essentially, when there is a much bigger issue, which is literally the existence of, of humanity as yeah, we know it. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's devastating to sort of... Yeah. Can we chat a little bit about your arrest? Because you left that out of the, of oh, yeah, the, of did, the story. Yeah. Jack was arrested <laughs> this year uh, with Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. Tell us about that, because I know that arrests can be quite a controversial topic when it comes to this kind of yeah. activism. So tell us about your experience of being arrested this year. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, just to touch on that quickly, like, th there are many, many failings of Extinction Rebellion, and, and, and critics are sort of right to, to, to bring those up. And I think there's a lot of work to do in, over the next few months to figure those out. And, and one of them, I think, is, is the narrative around arrest, this idea that it's sort of like fun and like everyone should just come and get arrested um it, it's not it's a really serious thing and I, and I found that out uh firsthand so yeah I was arrested before the April rebellion um I went to a press briefing uh, which Extinction Rebellion held where they invited all the newspapers to come down to talk about what their plans were for the year ahead um so they hadn't done a sort of major rebellion at this point and uh, Gail Bradbrook gave the sort of the talk, which uh, the Facing Extinction talk, which is uh, Extinction Rebellion have been given this talk all up and down the country. And um, although I know a lot of this stuff and I've seen a lot of it firsthand, I've really like tried to drink deep from the science. It just really moved me. I cried. Yeah, I was brought to tears in a way I hadn't been before. And there was something about hearing that talk in the context of being surrounded by all these legitimate journalists and this sort of realization of how real it was, you know, the, the sort of situation we're facing. 
And I was just really moved by that, that event. And, and at that event, someone came up to me um, and said, look, there's an action happening tomorrow. Um, out, uh, next week is, is the International Petroleum Conference. I've never even heard of this thing, but it's a conference that happens annually where all of the biggest names in the gas and oil industry meet to uh, rub shoulders and discuss the future of their industry. Um, and on the, the, the next day, they were meeting to discuss new exploration opportunities in Africa, in Western Africa. So essentially expanding inf uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. It's like the antithesis of evolution. <laughs> right, yeah. Complete antithesis. Right. Can't uh, get more opposite. Right, exactly. The opposite of this event. Yeah, yeah. imagine everyone here and the opposite of that. People sort of planning the destruction of the planet. And, and they are. And these people are all smart enough as well to know that, that that is what they're doing, right? They are complicit in essentially a genocide. And, and I, think, I suppose, imagine they're thinking about numbers over long-term sort of survival of people. So anyway, it felt just crazy that this thing could happen uh, without anyone sort of checking it and making a point that, 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 that we were aware it was going on. And so I was invited to come down uh, and take part in an action at the Intercontinental Hotel where it was being um, hosted. And so I went down the next morning, sort of charged with this fresh emotion from that, that, that conference Exchange Rebellion had held. And um, I, I had no plan that day. I, th I thought I'd probably just take a photograph of the action, put it on my Instagram to like support. I knew that there were eight people coming down who were called the arrestables, and they had committed to being arrested that day. They'd had all the necessary trainings of uh, which Extinction Rebellion are very, um, you know, sort of careful of to train everyone that they know how to, what to do when you're arrested. Uh, and so I went, I approached the hotel with these eight people and I watched as they all walked forward to the, the building and in uh, one swift movement applied glue to their hands before placing it against the glass of the, the, the front entrance to the Intercontinental Hotel. And that, as I watched, I like just this, I don't know, I felt this feeling inside me of like, I have to do something, you know, like I care about this issue. I know how serious it is. I can't just sit here and watch these people risk everything and, and not be a part of it. And I think Alice might have said, like, babe, you've got, you got to do something. I'm not blaming her. But she, she said, hey, <laughs> you've got to act. And so I was like, I have to do this. And so without thinking, in this sudden like, moment of like, enthusiasm, I walked up to the main door and pathetically, I just placed my hand against it like that and looked around. And the security, there was a bit of like, rough and tumble with security guards. They hadn't noticed that I wasn't using glue. And everything calmed down. And I was like, I've got away with it. Like, my hand was just placed against the glass. And I guess they assumed, like everyone else, I was stuck. So I felt quite chuffed with myself at this point. I thought, well, I'll just stand here and like make my point, you know, just communicate. <sighs> and the activist next to me, who I now know to be a guy called Yanai, I didn't know any of the people we didn't, hadn't met okay. before. I recognized some of their faces. Yanai was next to me, a New Zealand guy, and he realized my hand wasn't stuck. And he leant over and he was like, uh, hey, buddy, buddy, do you want some glue? <laughs> I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't need the glue, do I? I can just stand in. He's like, no, you've got, you got to get the main door. No one's got the main door. Take some glue and go for it. And suddenly there was that feeling again. I could see Alice watching me. <laughs> 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 and so, um, so I took the glue. I put some glue in my hand and I made this leap for the main door and I pushed it against it. The security guard came over. There was a bit of rough and tumble. I shouted as if my hand was stuck. And he sort of, you know, let me be. And eventually my hand did become very much stuck to the door. And I was like, wow, Christ, I'm in, I'm in this now. And so I stood there, everything calms down a bit. And then I realize that I really need a wee. And I've I always thought about yeah, this. I hadn't anticipated it. And what I also realized at that moment, I looked around me and I realized that we were all totally winging it. You know, like you assume that these people are, I don't know, professional activists or that they're really confident, you know, in this environment. And I was 
bricking it and like needing a wee and they were all terrified as well and to give you an idea you know uh, on my right was a guy called Sam who's a 23 year old uh, Cambridge graduate next to him was a mum of two uh, who had also graduated from Cambridge years before and uh, next to her a television producer um, at the end a 73 year old woman called Trudy so like the, the the greatest range of people and I later learned that for most of them it was their first time ever crossing the boundaries of the law Anyway, long story cut short, my um, pathetic attempt at being an environmental activist got even worse as I sort of had to deal with this predicament of needing a wee. My hand began to sweat, and surely enough, my hand then became unstuck from the door. And at this point, a, a policeman had been sort of positioned to like what, keep an eye on me. And I was like, right, do I pull my hand off the door and admit defeat and accept that it's no longer stuck or risk wetting myself and I didn't know what to do and my problem was solved for me was I was holding a sign that read Extinction Rebellion and I dropped it and without thinking I went oh yeah just pick that up <laughs> and the, literally the policeman who was looking at me he just like cocked his head smiled like this is obviously your first time and uh, <laughs> stepped forward and put the handcuffs on my wrist and I was the first to be arrested and I felt like I let the whole team down and um, yeah so that was my experience of being arrested and I was terrified and I was rubbish at it and I was taken to West End Central Police Station and held in the cell for 15 hours and of course all those things go through your head of like have I messed up you know have I done something terrible am I a terrible person and I came out to a text message from my mum that was just the, like the loveliest message you could imagine receiving from a parent you know having been arrested it was like I support you wholly and that sort of made me realize that what I'd done was was right and um yeah, so, so long story, but since that point, I've been in and out of court uh, five times over seven months alongside, uh, uh, they were calling us the Petroleum Nine, which sounds like some sort of James wow. Bond movie. The Petroleum Nine. <laughs> Coming soon to a theater exactly. near you. Yeah, I felt really cool to be part of the Petroleum <laughs> Nine. Uh, but also like that I had sort of really cheated my way into that group because these guys were real, real activists. You know, as I said, a few of them have kids and like what they were sacrificing on that day and have sacrificed since many of them have gone on to be arrested multiple times. Um, Kathy, the mum of two, was put into a cell for two months. Um, Mark, a, another guy who's on the, the thing, was also is, is currently um, in prison for, for two months. Um, he was one of the guys that joined that very stupid action on the DLR uh, where they climbed on top of the tube. Right. Talk about that later. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, They've gone on to, to, to sort of take these actions many times. And I have a lot, a, a lot of respect for them. And throughout the court process, many of them or half of them chose to represent themselves in court, which is an incredibly brave thing to do. And it means that you get basically, uh, rather than being interviewed by a lawyer, you have 20 minutes to stand up and explain why you did what you did. And, and I, I, I wish that the court processes were filmed. You know, they all happened in uh, dark rooms with no windows. We had no jury. Um, and I was so moved to have been a part of that uh, process, just listening to these people speak and give the reasons for why they took the actions they did. Um, and in short, uh, all of the, the ones that self-represented that stood up, Mark, for example, stood up and said, uh, I want my lawyer to stand down. He was being represented. He said, I want my lawyer to stand down. I want to speak from the heart. And he gave this amazing speech about, you know, like, let's remember why we're here. This is a theater. You know, you're the judge. Apparently, I'm the, you know, being convicted. This is why I took this action. This is the climate crisis. Like, let's think about the bigger picture rather than the, mi the minuscule, you know, detail of was our hand stuck, was it not stuck? And it was so powerful and so moving. But um, uh, when it came to the sort of day of decision, uh, he was found guilty along with four others uh, for essentially saying that they did what they did 
because they because of climate change. You know that they meant to go and cause disruption that day. Uh, and I, alongside with four others, were found not guilty because we were advised by lawyers to communicate in a certain way. And that's literally what it came down right. to. If if I said in court I went to communicate a message that day, I was innocent. If I said I went to go and cause a disruption that day, I was guilty. And so I said what I was told to say, and I was found, uh, you know, not not guilty. And and of course, like, I don't want a criminal record. It's not going to help me in my career of you know trying to communicate this issue. So. My intention was never to get a criminal record, but but I think just looking back, why I take this action? Throughout those few months, that uh, that arrest gave me a, a, a real strong platform to stand upon to communicate the issues of climate change. And I was offered the opportunity to speak to Christiane Amanpour on CNN, who's a total hero of mine, and Victoria Derbyshire on the BBC um, because of that arrest. And and hopefully those opportunities allowed me to communicate that message further. And so that's why we take those actions and that's why I think they're effective. Please don't let imposter syndrome creep in because <laughs> I, I hear you doing it so frequently. You are a fully legitimate activist and the work you do is so, so important. So remove those thoughts from your head, please. Do you not agree? Like, he's doing great, great work. Um, can we chat a little bit about the DLR incident? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how that was kind of, how in how it was spoken about within Extinction Rebellion as yeah. well. Yeah, so one of the reasons that uh, Extinction Rebellion is sort of charged today, uh, like has this sort of, um, you know, is controversial in the way that it is today versus like a few months ago, it, is that action, uh, which this I'm sure everyone's aware of it, but you know, it happened at the end of the two-week October Rebellion. Uh, two individuals uh, acted entirely upon their own accord to go and climb on top of the DLR, which is an electric train at Canning uh, Town Station, uh, and sort of stop the train from moving. And so this was an action that had been uh, voiced internally. Uh, and as I said, Mark was one of the people doing it who was on my um, court case. So I'd gotten to know him really well for over the last few months. Uh, and then and another gentleman who I didn't know, had never met before. And on the group that I had for, my, uh, for all the defendants within my case, there had been a week's worth of... Uh, literally begging Mark not to take this action. So he had voiced, it become apparent that he was wanted to take this action. Um, and, and there was uh, so much conversation about the impacts of taking action, the negative impacts of taking action. Why do this? Why go and take an action like that? Why go and make it look as though you are targeting working class people who are going about their everyday jobs? Because of course, that is not what we need to do. We need to, to target those who are most responsible, which are the polluters, you know, the, the fossil fuel companies, and we know who they are. It, like, of course, we all have to take individual actions, but it, it's not about penalizing individuals. We are all just living within the system that is created for us, and none more so than, than those living on the breadline or like with their shoulder down to the grind. And so those are the last people we should be inconvening and, and targeting. And I, I don't think that they, I don't know what their thinking was. I honestly don't. And I haven't spoken to Mark because he's now, you know, has been in prison since. But I don't think they meant to target those people specifically. I think what they wanted to do was a controversial stunt that would just raise the, the, the message further, you know. And that's what it's hard to communicate on the day. You know, but people, you can see in the videos, go up to them and they say, well, why are you doing this? You know, the train's electric. Why are you inconvening me? And I don't think the people took that action. I'm not defending it at all. But I don't think they thought they were inconvening those people. I think they just thought they were raising the alarm in a bigger way. But, yeah, in my opinion, it was a stupid way to do that. So anyway, it, it happened, and it, and it was a really bad thing for Extinction Rebellion. It caused a load of controversy, and it, and it put a load of people off the movement. But I think the, the thing with it is 
I think it's inevitable, unfortunately, because Extinction Rebellion A is a decentralized movement. So we don't have a say, we can't say you can or can't do this. Anyone can plan an action, work within the principles of Extinction Rebellion and claim that they're a part of the movement. And that's part of the beauty of the movement and why it's grown so rapidly globally. And B, these individuals were acting on their own grief and fear. That's what motivated those people that day, grief and fear for the science that they're reading from, from, yeah, from, from what they've read. And I, and I think that we're going to see more of that. I think as more and more people educate themselves on the issue and, and, and process and understand it, they will act in their own ways on, on fear and grief. And I d we don't have a say on, on you know, what that should look like or how that manifests. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a sort of really succinct conclusion. It's scary. It scares me. Um, and it's devastating. But uh, I, I think that it's, it's unfortunately something we're going to see more of. I don't think this is going to stay sort of plain and simple for a lot, you know, into the future. So in the next kind of year, year let's say, because we've just they've just celebrated the year, year anniversary, where do you see things going? Do you just see more disruption like this? No, I, no, I don't. I think that Extinction Rebellion um, have to think really carefully about what the next action looks like. So the next act big action will be in April um, uh, next year. So I think the plan at the moment is to do these sort of big April and September actions each year. And until then, it's to they're, they're spending a lot of time um, really thinking about how to uh, take on the sort of feedback and criticism that was thrown at them and to incorporate it into the movement. Um, and I actually am going on Thursday to a sort of uh, debrief uh, from uh, of, of the October rebellion. And so I'll get an insight into the thinking. So I'm not in the office every day, so I don't know what's happening, honestly, sort of, you know, centrally, internally. Mm. Um, but I think they have to shift away from just, just sort of protesting and blocking roads in the streets. I think it has to become more clever. I think it has to become much more targeted at the polluters, at those who are most responsible. Um, and so I think they have to shift their tactics. And I, th I think they will, you know, I think that they, they've learned a lot. Um, and I think also perhaps including a fourth demand around um, uh, fair transitions and intersectionality, you know, another criticism that's often thrown at Extinction Rebellion is that it has a race problem. And I think that that would be a, a really fair criticism to say that it, uh, that it is a very white movement. And I think that um, that isn't exclusive to Extinction Rebellion. I think if you look at the entire green movement, look at things like these events, you know, they are very white. They shouldn't be, and that's a problem. But, and I think Extinction Rebellion aren't working hard enough to combat that, and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that they have to figure out internally. How do you make this a movement that's successful to everyone? This is an issue that affects everyone, and we know is currently affecting those who've done the least to impact it, you know, in the, sa in this, uh, the global south. And so um, this is a movement that should involve everyone, and, it, and if everyone doesn't feel included, we're definitely doing something wrong. I feel like we could talk about this all day, but I'm aware that time is against us. Um, we speak a lot uh, between us and, and also on social media about being recovering hypocrites. And it was an amazing yeah. phrase coined earlier this year by Caitlin Moran. We're all recovering hypocrites at this point. What are you working on at the moment in your kind of own individual action to be more sustainable and to kind of lower your impact? And is being a recovering hypocrite something you kind of grapple with every day? Mm. Such an interesting topic, isn't it? And I feel like it's becoming more and more relevant, this thing of hypocrisy. And that was the sort of other criticism that was thrown at Extinction Rebellion. You know, I'm sure everyone read the press of like Emma Thompson flying in yeah. to the April Rebellion. And, and um, you know, this one, of this one of the major issues we've had is, is celebrities or people of note, people of influence, scared of coming out in support of Extinction Rebellion or talking about climate change because they're scared of being called a hypocrite, which is totally understandable. Um, and I think that th there's, a, there's a risk with this thing 
that, that, that we're sort of missing the point. So like by focusing on pointing fingers at each other and accusing each other of sort of falling short, we're missing the bigger conversation, which is about system change, right? We all exist within this system and we can all do so much and we should all endeavor to do as much as we can. And so like, yeah, to answer your question, I've adopted a plant-based diet. Um, I drive an electric car, I ride my bicycle more, um, I'm drastically reducing travel next year. To, I'm basically changing career to, to, to stop traveling. And so I'm factoring all these things in, but we can't lose sight of the bigger picture, which is that we need system change. We need systematic change that allows us to live in a more sustainable way. Um, and we're going to do that by uniting together to demand that change, rather than um, isolating one another by being like, yeah, well, you're not a perfect environmentalist. Like, we need everyone, you know, the, 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 the scale of change that's required means that we need everyone. And if you have to be a perfect environmentalist to be a part of that change, we're gonna have a very small number of people. And of course, as well, you get criticized either way, don't you? If you're, you know, super green and you live in a yurt and you don't wear shoes and you have long hair, you're called a hippie, you know, a or a crusty by Boris Johnson. Uh, and if you're the opposite, if you're super middle class and wealthy or whatever, then you're said you're called a champagne socialist. And so I think whatever you do, you're going to be uh, accused. And so you have to just like own your own hypocrisy. So this other term I've been heard throwing around, I've heard being thrown around is eco hypocrite. And I said, I'm really tempted to put that on my Instagram bio. Like, like it. Yeah, documentary filmmaker, environmentalist, and eco-hypocrite. Because we are all eco-hypocrites. That's just a given. You can't avoid that. And once you accept that and move on from it, there's a real power then of like, let's move on from the fact we're all hypocrites and figure out how we're going to fix the issues rather than just accusing one another of sort of falling short of perfectionism. Mm. I think on that note, let's give Jack a huge round of applause. Thank you so, so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us some positive feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. By doing this, you'll be helping get messages about inspirational, positive plant-powered living into people's earbuds. Until the next time, take care, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon.